you show up and you show up as fully as you can in every role that you play. This is Sue Freck, and I'm your host of the Happy Marketer Connection podcast brought to you by Vesta. Each week, along with my guests, other fellow passionate marketers, we'll explore engaging and inventive marketing strategies and toast brands making impactful consumer connections. Please kick back, relax, and enjoy our happy half hour of marketing inspiration and positivity and come away a happier and smarter marketer. This week's guest is Rachel braun Rachel is the co-founder and managing partner of Spark Solutions for Growth. She's not only a growth strategy consultant, but also a marketing expert and sought-after public speaker. She's become a trusted authority in leadership and entrepreneurship. In her 20-plus years as a consultant and entrepreneur, Rachel has achieved countless gains for her clients. Rachel is one of those leaders who is not only remarkable on paper, but is also more impressive when you have the chance to work with her. I'm sure you'll understand after listening to this episode. Her leadership skills have helped her found, grow, and exit a company in the female sexual wellness space, giving her the title Vagipreneur. More on this in a few. Please join me in welcoming Rachel to this week's show. Well, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Happy Marketer Connection. This week's theme is Pioneer because our guest has truly paved the way for so many people, companies, and brands. I'm really excited to share her background, her successes, and I feel she's one of those guests I can throw any topic at, whether it's business, entrepreneurship, marketing, and she would have at least a story, experience, or advice. Let me introduce this week's guest. This week's guest is Rachel braun who has become a trusted authority in leadership and entrepreneurship. So welcome, Rachel, to my podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So... I am going to dive right in with an icebreaker here. What is a vagipreneur? So it actually is a word that was created by this brilliant journalist and the New York Times, Abby Ellen. And when we were first delving into sexual health over a decade ago, she said, oh, you're in female sexual health, you're in arousal, you're in satisfaction. I get it. You're building a business. You're a vagipreneur. And I (laughs) said, that's the greatest name ever. And every time I used it, people just got it, that it was, it was to speak to a person who's in the business of female sexual and reproductive health. And then a little while later, I called her up and I said, listen, I love this word. You made up this word. If you don't want it, I want to trademark it. So I did. Amazing. So, <laughs> I didn't even know that. I am now a trademarked entrepreneur. And it really is just a good shorthand and certainly as a conversation starter most of the time. Yes, of course, of course, which is diving us right into this conversation. And we will talk about uh, your experience in sexual, sexual wellness as well. So you've had this incredible opportunity, Rachel, to work with some of the world's leading healthcare brands, Fortune 100 companies, um, even independent brands, a variety of startups. Do you know, can you just talk a little bit about sort of the advantages of each, you know, I, I really am putting the comparing and contrasting the startup world, which is the world I live into some of these big fortune 100 brands and what those challenges or advantages are of each. Sure. And you also, to a certain extent, live in both worlds because you're a startup, but your customers and clients are these very large established companies. So I started my career at um, after business school at Johnson & Johnson working on the um, Tylenol brand. And what was really great about starting my formal business career there was there was a focus on processes and 
functional skills and team building and all those things. And those have served me really well throughout the rest of my career. I only spent a short time at J&J, but over a 24-year period, maybe longer, they were either my employer or a client um, to whom I provided services. So always understanding how to speak the large company language and, and understanding how decisions are made and the pace with which they are made is very helpful. On the startup side, my business partner, Mary, and I raised money for the first time in 2008, and we created a company around an asset that improved arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women, regardless of age and life stage. And what was interesting about that is because we had also had our own strategy consulting firm for so long, we did know how to run a business but we were servicing very large companies at the time. So I think what really served us well is the ability, as I say, to always be on the balls of your feet, to know what the right questions are to ask, and to know that you have to make decisions in a much quicker pace. And I would say of all the things that I like, small company versus large company, is when you are running a small company, you get to decide the pace of decision-making. Yes. You get to decide you know, as we would say, we'll take in all the information, we'll get, you know, folks, relevant folks' opinions, and then we'll make the decision. So it was really the pace and the ability to get things done, which I think is the biggest advantage. On the large company side, it's really the framework, the infrastructure, the processes, knowing how to get things done that I think helps companies be successful. And in both those cases, the, the positives on both sides, sometimes those can also be weaknesses. So to a certain extent, you know, I consider my secret sauce that I've worked in and worked with large companies and I've worked in and worked with small companies. And now so much of my work is bringing venture-backed startups to larger companies to figure out how to drive innovation and growth. That's amazing. That's amazing. And it allows you, again, to use the experience on both sides, the advantages on both sides. I love that. You know, when you're helping some of the smaller brands, and we have lots of listeners that are startups and entrepreneurs, we also have some big brand marketers here. But when you're helping some of the smaller brands, what are they looking for most often from your consulting business? Is it leadership? Is it strategy, creative, a little of everything? I think it's a little bit of everything. But the one issue that um, entrepreneurs are really worried about is they don't want to pay for a 10,000 foot view. So while the strategy is helpful, one of the ways that I benefit them is I also dig in and get stuff done. Yes. <laughs> so literally just today, I was working with a company um, that's a venture backed startup that's focused on growth. And I made a suggestion about a survey technique we, we should use. And in the course of the conversation, we literally wrote the questions to the survey. So it's what I call pragmatic strategy, the ability to translate what needs to be done, what you're trying to accomplish with the actual steps to get it done. In my experience, most of the time, um, entrepreneurs just like large companies, they want you to make their job easier, yeah. which I think is a positive, they, but they don't want to waste time. They don't want to waste their time. They don't want to waste my time. They don't want to spend money unnecessarily. So I think it's all those things. What can you do? I don't need someone else just talking at me, telling me things. I don't have the luxury of sitting back and processing. Um, and that's really 
often the mindset, and then you've been in those shoes also, you know, you would love to sit back and think <laughs> about strategy and vision and where you're going to be in 20 years. <laughs> and you do have to think about those things. But the day-to-day pressure to get the job done, to make the sale, to meet your requirements, that, that's what's really driving an entrepreneur, at least the ones that I work with. And so that's really what I focus on. How can I contribute to them meeting their business goals? And that, to me, I've worked with a lot of consultants over the years. That is a little bit, um, or truly a different way of thinking about it because so many consultants will come in and write the plan and then they hand over the business plan and they spend all this time and money doing discovery and they write the marketing plan or they write the PR plan. And those are the consultants that I've used over the years. And that's great. And that's all needed. Yeah. Right. Then someone has to do it. <laughs> yes, someone, and as an entrepreneur or the founder, you don't have the time to do the work. So you hired the consultant, but really diving and digging in or helping them find the people or the tools within their own organization to make it happen to your point, get stuff done is definitely. And I think advantage. what you just said is really, is really, really important. Sometimes my job is finding the, the person who's going to fill that role internally, not because I'm a headhunter, but because I might have worked, you know, over the course of my career, worked with someone or seen someone who I think um, could add value. And even with all that said, there still are some startups who say, you know, I want to work with you. And once a week, I want to be able to call you and pick your brain. I love that too. It's a different kind of approach. And that's much less frequent for startups. Whereas working with large companies, they tend to be bigger and longer term projects focused on solving a particular problem. Yeah, so true, so true. So I'm going to go back to my first question, the vagipreneur, and talk about your business and the sexual wellness. So, you know, so many marketers work in women's health or sexual wellness, but they don't get to go off and not only create a product, but launch a new business around it. So can you just talk about that journey, how you got started and and, and what that product and, and company was? First, I have to say, I didn't create the product. Um, It was done by a very uh, brilliant scientist who stumbled upon it. So we bought the asset. And the way that happened is a venture capitalist had handed me a a business plan, and he's never handed me one before or since. And we're literally driving to J&J. For those folks who work in and around New Jersey, there's a place you get to um, a roundabout where you can go down any particular road and wind up at a, a different number of J&J companies. So we were literally driving down one of these roads and I'm reading the business plan to Mary aloud. Uh, and we said, wow, this is interesting. 43% of women have sexual concerns and difficulties. There were 35 active clinical programs. Now there are only two, you know, women don't have a language to discuss this. Their doctors don't discuss it with them. It's one of the few categories we've ever been in where you don't talk about it with your mother, your sister, your friend. It just seemed way too personal. And we had had, now we're in decade three, of people who have grown up with the bigger, longer, stronger for our erections. And that language didn't seem to ring true in the context of how women were talking about sex. So literally, it was that simple. We were, I was reading the business plan, and we said, this is cool. We met and went with the people running the business and it turns out they were, we thought we were looking for consulting and they were looking for money. So at the point that company had a very complicated financial structure and they had 165 individual shareholders and we said, you know, this is really interesting, but it feels like a little bit of a quagmire at this point. And we went back to doing what we were doing and then 
very long story, hopefully um, short, the asset became available and we partnered with a venture capitalist. We raised money, we bought the asset and we built the company. So I say I'm an accidental badgerpreneur. The part <laughs> that wasn't so surprising is it wasn't women's health. I mean, we had worked in businesses that affected women from the tops of their heads, to the tips of their toes, you know, hair care, skin care, oral care, psoriasis, fertility, infertility, menstruation, foot fungus, hemorrhoids, you know, the glamorous and the not so glamorous. And so we felt that we had been spending a lot of time building businesses that speak to women. As one of my friends put it when they found out what I was doing, someone who's known me forever, um, he said, oh, now you found the sweet spot, <laughs> which was, you know, a good pun. But this idea that it was almost a, a perfect storm for a marketing person, which is huge need, no great solutions, no conversation, limited understanding um, about what these things even were, and not great places to get information at that time around arousal, desire, and satisfaction. Because at the time that we started the company, you basically could find porn or, you know, disease, my vagina's falling off, or whatever, yeah, you know, right. extreme article that you would <laughs> see. So it, it just seemed too exciting to pass up and we had never raised money before and we were doing it in the financial um, crisis of 2008 when <laughs> companies are going bankrupt left and right and you know people weren't exactly waiting at their front doors to talk to two women about vaginas but it has created a whole another chapter and career and set of stories and experiences for me that I, I can't imagine having missed. Yeah, and in business school, this was not part of the plan. <laughs> no. When I, I wrote a book, as you know, two years ago called Orgasmic Leadership, Profiting from the Coming Surge in Women's Sexual Health and Wellness. And when I set out to do it, I started doing interviews, and I interviewed over three dozen academics and healthcare practitioners and entrepreneurs. And I did start with that question. You know, in very few cases did people say, oh, I woke up and knew I wanted to be a vagipreneur. I mean, number one, the word didn't exist. And number two, it wasn't something that we talked about. And so many of the people in the space stumbled into the opportunities because they had a problem themselves or someone in their family had a problem and they didn't see a solution. They created a solution and then built a business around it, which is really one of the very exciting things about female sexual health is how meaningful the solution is to the founder and how that is so much a part of so many founders stories in terms of why their businesses came into being. That's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, for us, you know, we build online communities and it's so exciting that the communities we build give people a safe place to talk about it, but without, you know, your, you pioneering and coming out and saying it is okay to talk and you should be talking about it. It has certainly made um, my work in, in working with clients in the sexual wellness much easier because people are not afraid to talk about it now. And I love that, love that piece of it. Well, it's getting better. And I would say one of the amazing things about being in this space as long as I have is that, you know, a rising tide raises all boats. I feel like during the pandemic, at least one of the positive things is female health just seems to be everywhere. And the discussion of women's wellness and the fact that you can't separate sexual health from bone health, from women's health, from mental health. And so over the past 10 years, there are literally hundreds of companies that have been created dealing with different aspects of, you know, what I call the complex glory of women's sexual and reproductive health um, from menstruation to menopause and everywhere in between. And 
what's amazing about the companies in this space, so there, the, my point is there's a lot of people contributing to this conversation. So there, you know, we have some numbers, we have some volume, we have some successes now, we have folks who are really want to invest either in this space or in minority or diverse founders. The companies in the space tend to be founded by women. So it, again, it feels like our time has come. You know, it's an overnight sensation, 50 years in the making. <laughs> so one of the things you say about being able to build communities is building a community and building the conversation is really a communal effort. Yes. It takes lots of players and lots of companies and lots of, um, you use the word pioneers, lots of pioneers to make sure that we're having this conversation. And there isn't just one way to have it. You know, one of the issues is sexuality and gender and choice. They're so varied. Um, and the discussion is so wide and creating environments, you know, certainly when you're creating communities where people can find a place that makes sense for them. They can find a place to discuss the issues that they have and what the products or services might be best for them. Just yesterday, I interviewed a woman, um, Heather Morrison, who runs a company called Handy, which is basically she's created sex toys for the disabled community based oh, wow. on the fact that her brother, I believe he has cerebral palsy. And in a casual conversation, he said, you know what? It's hard for me to find those little buttons and all those things. And she said, so, you know, what do you do? And out of that conversation came this business. Love it. <laughs> so we're making progress and we're still breaking down barri barriers. One of the things that I've really enjoyed in quarantine is I do a lot of speaking and I'm yes. out and about mm -hmm. and speaking to people in the space and learning um, and being inspired. And I said, well, without all that in COVID, what can I do to, to keep learning and keep going and to be inspired and, you know, hopefully along the way inspire somebody. So I created a Zoom series called Quotes from Quarantine in which I conduct, you know, 10 to 15 minute interviews with leaders in femtech, sex tech and women's health um, about what they're doing to survive and hopefully thrive during COVID. And part of the reason I picked that group is one, I'm passionate about it and I live in that space. The other is because the people who choose this space or wind up in this space are incredibly creative and disciplined and focused on problem solving. And I thought, if we can't learn from these people, who can we learn from? Right. So it's really been for me a way during COVID to continue to learn, to continue to connect, uh, to shine a light on, on these companies and also get smarter about the space that I'm in because it's changing all the time. And I love it. And that was the premise for me starting the podcast too. So same as you that, you know, we both have this um, ability to connect people, connect with people and bring some positivity, which is what I love about you. And I think that, um, you know, turning your Zoom hopefully into something bigger and better. And I know soon to come with that, but I'm excited to follow that as well, because I certainly understand. Well, I love your exactly. description. <laughs> Unfailing optimist. Like as there's people who try but they fail, but you don't fail. And in the many, many times that I've seen you, I have yet to see you without a smile on your face and that same kind of contagious energy. Yes, well, thank you. And I do, I do try to stay positive. <laughs> so let's talk about um, so many of our listeners that are working on brand side or brand teams, you know, and you've seen both the brand side of the business, agency service providers. Do you think that there is a certain skill set for them to climb this CPG ladder, to be go to go from an associate brand manager, or let's say 
business school gets scooped up by a big guy, P&G, Reckitt, J&J, and then how do they climb that ladder? Like you've seen them, because you've worked with them at all stages. This is what I do love about the stage you and I are in. I mean, the people I know now, they're CMOs, they're VPs, they're directors. They were, you know, they were either in business school or they were like associate brand managers when we started. So talk a little bit about advice for, for them. Well, what's interesting is going back when I, after business school, I went to um, J&J, um, I went to Stanford Business School and very few people were looking for CPG jobs. And I literally, this is how long ago it was, I wrote a letter to a division of J&J sharing my background and saying what I would like to do and, you know, the experience I had had prior to business school. And my first day on the job, there was a very senior person in the meeting and he says to the group, well, I didn't know we interviewed at Stanford. And... <laughs> It wasn't, I don't know what the implication was. It wasn't up to their quality or whatever it was. And literally the guy who hired me said, well, we read our mail. So it's so funny that now, you know, I've always thought it was a desirable career, uh, but coming from Stanford with the focus on entrepreneurship and uh, venture capital and consulting, it, it seemed to be a different path at that time. The people that I get to see and work with who have been successful have a number of qualities. One, they really are interested in how consumers behave and think. They really care about how the products are being used. Second, they have the ability to juggle many, 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 many different hats and different roles and different conversations. So, you know, to launch a new product, you have to understand at some point or build relationships with packaging with advertising, with communications, with R&D, with consumer insights or research or whatever it's called in any particular organization, the ability to take a number of pieces and put them into a cohesive whole and create a story around it, I think is really, really critical. And these organizations are large and they're political. So really knowing how to have relationships, how to manage down, manage up, how to constantly be seeking what, where's the next opportunity that I want and really keeping your nose clean and making sure that in each job you have, you've built a skill or skills and you've demonstrated something that will help you get to the next level. It is not easy to stay in a company for 25 years. So the people who do it or stay in an industry, I don't go to a meeting now where I don't know someone who knows someone. And same with my partners. If you play in a certain world and it's defined enough, you continue to see the same people. And so you really have to make sure, and this isn't CPG, this is anywhere, that you're behaving with integrity, that people can trust what you say, that you're reliable, that you know, even when you disagree, you do it in a way that different ideas can be discussed. Uh, and there's a piece of endurance also. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, sim similar to being an entrepreneur, you know, yeah. it yeah. takes longer, it's harder, and it's more expensive. And this is, I think this applies to almost any part of life <laughs> than you anticipate. Yeah, right, and, right. The, and the people who are doing it are so smart. You know, the CMOs and the CEOs of many of these companies could do literally anything because they understand how to manage a P&L. They understand about supply chain. They understand about all the elements to run a business. And if they don't know, they, they have the intelligence to know what they don't know and to ask. Interested in building a home for your audience? 
Our Vesta solution powers online communities, giving your consumers a home for a world of engagement and connections. To learn more, visit us at vesta-go.com. So, you know, I think about entrepreneurship and I think about I today, you know, I started my career at Kraft at GSK and I would not go back to a company of that size if I had a choice. As a, as a full-time employee, yes, consult, love, helping and partnering love. with them. Love, absolutely. But um, that entrepreneurship piece or the entrepreneur, that mindset, what, what do you think that is then that, that keeps someone like me or, or many of us that at a smaller company or a fast paced moving company, yet we service and work with all these really big brands and have such appreciation of the work that they do and love helping them bring products to market. Is there like a skill or is there something, an ingredient that um, individuals have that sort of keep them in the entrepreneurial world? And you went to business school with so many of them. <laughs> I think, you know, there's no, not one hard and fast answer. You know, for years or decades, people have been saying, can you teach entrepreneurship? I think to be an entrepreneur, you have to be comfortable with a, some amount of risk. And oftentimes when I'm speaking to students and they say, can anyone be an entrepreneur? I mean, in theory, you could, but you also have to put it in the context of, what if you didn't make money for a year? Could you pay your medical bills? Could you pay your rent? You know, what, is, what else is happening in your life? Who is relying on you financially? So I think it, it does, though, for the people who like it, it's energizing. And for the people who it's not meant to be for, it's enervating. Like, you, you know, you and I, we could, like, just explode from the excitement of trying something new or coming up with a new idea, and it might work, and we might not make money, but here we're making money, and we get to sell, and there's you know, just sort of the pace of it is incredibly appealing. And I, I think it's really much more a personal decision. How do you want your life to be structured and, and how do you want your life to feel? You know, there is a safety net. Doesn't mean everybody has lifetime employment. There is a safety net working in a large organization. 100%. <laughs> you know, you, you have, there's a limit to how much success you can take credit for. And there's, to a certain extent, a limit to your downside. When you're an entrepreneur, there literally could be no limit up or down. And I think you have to feel comfortable with uncertainty and really, really, really love to solve problems because that's one thing you never run out of as an entrepreneur. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so much um, craziness during this COVID and civil unrest and we're coming into an election time period. You know, what else has been positive coming out of this? What can you share? Obviously, you're having these incredible Zoom calls. Anything you're seeing from clients that they're shifting, they're, they're doing to help survive and thrive? Uh, partners, your company. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about something positive coming out of this crazy time period? Well, there are a few positives. You know, the first one for me is personal. It's that my adult children are stuck <laughs> living with me and I say stuck. That might be their perspective, but it's not mine. It really is sort of the gift of time that I wasn't going to get. From a client perspective, what I see is a real reliance on people they trust. So over the period of COVID, I've had older clients that I haven't worked with in a while sort of come out of the woodwork call me out of the blue and say, can you, can you help me with this? So I think that relationships are even more important. I think people are working harder and it doesn't seem that the day has a beginning or end. So you do want to work with people who don't drain you. But I would say the most important thing is that strong relationships get stronger and there is less um, noise. 
around. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not having meetings. I also happen to love that I have hours free a day that were formally spent on managing the logistics of being in God knows how many different places and trains and planes and automobiles. Same. So those would be my two, the, the power of relationships and the almost zero time other than managing your calendar, which is not easy, man- the, lo- the limited logistics of trying to get places. Yeah, yeah, I would absolutely agree. The time, and same with my family and the efficiency, how much I'm getting done right now because I'm not commuting hours or obviously flying every single week is same, same as you. So you've had such a successful career. You continue to have such a successful career. Is there something that you are most passionate or proud of that you could share with me? Yes, I would say there was a moment when I said, wow, <laughs> you know, I feel like I arrived. So when we started our, our sexual health company, one of the challenges, and you and I have discussed this before, one of the challenges we had is that people wouldn't take our money for advertising. So, you know, we were fighting City Hall, we went to 100 different outlets, and 95% of them said no. And that was, that was online website, it was cable, it was radio, it was network. And you know, we came up with a strategy at one point where we said, well, if we can't buy media, we can earn it. So it took us a while to find the right partner, but we found this amazing PR partner who believed that this was a story. And we launched a story and that basically launched the company about the disparity between men and women's advertising. So that was great, but that wasn't the thing. During this period of time, I got a call from the dean of the business school um, that I graduated from who said, um, we're working on writing case studies with female founders. So that conversation led to the dean of the business school at the time writing a case about the company that Mary and I were building that we then taught live in front of students. Amazing. Amazing. You know, at the place where I graduated. So I felt like, I don't, whatever is the expression, the bird was coming home to nest. It just felt like full circle that I've become, I've gone from student to teacher. And that was really a moment that is so clear in my mind, standing in that room, I can picture all the students, I can picture the conversation. And that felt substantial. Amazing. Yeah, I can absolutely, and I have goosebumps right now, which I love. Um, it happens not often on, on the podcast, so I love that. So you stand in front of them, which is similar to the question from one of our Smiley members is, what advice? Do you have a piece of advice that you sort of leave every student or you do lots of speaking engagements? What is that piece of advice you have for them? So it's easy, and I say the same thing all the time. It is a slogan that's called no time out, no substitutions. And in the way of background, uh, we watched, I'm one of two daughters. We, my father loved the sports movies, come from behind training movies. We watched every sports movie you know, when my kids wanted to start watching Rocky, I said, well, you have to watch one through five. You, you have to start at the middle, at the beginning. That's the only way to do it. Um, but one of the movies that we watched that always stuck with me was this movie called um, Rollerball, which was a futuristic, now sort of a cult film that in 1975-76 about, you know, this day in the future with this modern day futuristic roller derby where people are riding around on motorcycles and the the wheels have spikes and they have gloves that have spikes and the objective of the game is to take this silver ball this heavy silver ball and get it into the bullseye 
And the game wasn't over until the other team was dead. And every time I get to this point, people are like, well, that's kind of odd. Why would your father have you watch that movie? But it turns out before every match in the movie, the referee would say the rules, no timeout, no substitution. And that became a metaphor that my dad used to sort of live his life and to impart his wisdom to us. So everybody's counting on you. There's no one on the bench to take your place. Your effort matters. You have to work as hard as you can, as long as you can, so you can't do it anymore. And then you come back the next day and do it again. And the conversation and the application would get broader and broader. It's how you have a relationship. It's how you parent. It's how you behave as a friend. It's how you behave as a daughter or sister or cousin that literally you show up and you show up as fully as you can in every role that you play. And you do it as well and as long as you can. I love that. You know, the idea that people are counting on you doesn't mean that you're the only important person and that you don't need to be part of a team. In fact, it's the opposite. You have to be part of a team, but know how important your role is. So that's always been when people say, what's your slogan? It's no timeout, no substitution. And when my dad passed away uh, almost five years ago, that was what I spoke about in his eulogy was that I felt like no timeout, no substitution was how he inspired me to live. And that's so true. It's when you then look back, if you've lived every part of your life with that, then you have no regrets. You've lived your life to the fullest. And I love that. So that's everything. Like you said, it's your parenting. It's, it's how you're a student. It's how you even, you know, internship to become an employee, employer. I love that. That's incredible. And I would say there's a couple other things that I always say that are, you know, not so much life slogans, but are fundamentals that I think people should know. I think you should work with people you like on things that you like that for me personally. And when you have to give up one, the content is less important than the people. I think you should say what you mean and mean what you say so that, you know, no one in business that I've ever met likes surprises. You know, people should know that when Sue says something, she means it. And when she says she's going to deliver something, she does it. And I think that creates trust on both sides. And from a skill perspective, I, there are three skills that I think everybody needs to know how to do. I think you need to be able to tell a story, whether that's verbally or written communication. I think you need to be able to communicate. I think you need to be able to negotiate. And I think you need to be able to sell because ultimately you are selling something in a business (laughs) or in the course of your life, whether it's an idea, whether it's a new program, whether it's a pivot, whether it's the story of your company to an investor. And I think those three things are pretty fundamental to anything you need to know how to do And if you don't know how to do those, and I'm learning all the time, and I'm sure you would say the same thing. It's not like you say one day, got it, I know how to sell. (laughs) But if those are skills that you're continually working on, I think those make a big difference in the course of a career. I love that. And there's so many resources to learn about those skills. I mean, think of all of the sites and books and mentors, but certainly I know I'm always trying to improve, particularly my negotiation skills. You know, I come from a place where I would let others first and say, you know, say, oh yes, it's your turn. No, I don't deserve this for many years. And I think that is to, for me personally, a really important one. So I I love that. And thank you for reminding me of that. So is there a positive story, a funny story or anything in your career, anything you want to share um, also with the audience today? 
Yeah, and I would say it has to do with when we were raising money, as I said, it was 2008 and the financial market was in the toilet, so to speak. And we go to Silicon Valley and we are trying to raise money and we had 13 meetings in two days and uh, we're talking about a product that improves arousal and we go into the first two meetings and they, you know, ask us questions about how is it different than Viagra or what does it mean for his satisfaction when the product was really built around her satisfaction. And for anybody who hasn't raised money before, and you know this, the objective is to get someone interested enough that you have another meeting. And the indicator of that is usually some engaged conversation or some important strategic questions. And we got none of that. In fact, what we heard was really giggling. You know, and literally, I thought we could hear whispering. Oh, let me tell you about my senior prom date, or because it was sexual in nature and people were tittering and whispering. You know, not only couldn't we have a conversation, we couldn't get their attention. Oh my goodness! So, you know, we're thinking, okay, we have eleven more of these, and I. It was my first time raising money. So I had this image of, you know, getting that big publisher's clearinghouse check that was going to be life size. I was going to leave Silicon Valley with this check. And um, Mary and I said, well, we have 11 more at this rate. It's going to feel like a prison sentence um, as opposed to a fundraising mission. So I happened to look in my wallet. And to this day, neither of us know why I did that. And I never have cash because I track everything. I could tell you what I spent on groceries in June of 2018 or what I spent on uh, home repair in March of some other decade. No one ever looks at it, but I have it. So I do everything on a credit card. I happen to have a hundred dollar bill and it sort of inspired Mary and me to try a different approach. So we huddle, we come up with our language, we come up with our strategy and we said, we have 11 more meetings. If we screw this up, we can figure out a different solution. So we go into the third meeting and I take the hundred dollar bill and I smack it on the table and I said, here's a hundred dollar bill. If anyone asks us a question about the category we can't answer, this $100 is yours. If anyone makes a sexual innuendo that we haven't heard before, this $100 is yours. If anyone shares a double entendre that makes us blush, this $100 is yours. And then I paused and I said, she likes it more, she wants to have it more, let's talk about the business model. And in that moment, every conversation that we had changed. Amazing. You know, we had their attention. We said, you know, we basically communicated, you guys might want to be laughing, you know, and telling jokes about your heroics and your successes from your conquests from years past. But we're here to talk about the business. We're going to talk about how you're going to make money. We're going to talk about something that we're not embarrassed of. So if you guys want to be embarrassed, you can own it. But it really was a powerful moment for us because going forward, it changed how we thought and how we spoke and it and brought humor into the conversation and we really became if it is a word unembarrassable yeah right we've heard it we've seen it <laughs> like bring it on bring it on bring it, tell I me what you think that. you're going to say that i haven't heard before that some other guy who looks exactly like you in a previous right. meeting hasn't said to me before I love it. I love it. Oh my God. And that was a game changer for you. Well, Rachel, this has been amazing. So now I need to let the audience know, how do they find you? How do they find your consulting business, speaking engagements, um, mentoring? How do people find you? Thank you so much. So consulting is at Spark Solutions for Growth, or you can look for me personally, Rachel braun or you can look for Vagipreneur, I Should Come Up, or Orgasmic Leadership. All my social handles are either R.B. Sherrill or Rachel braun and I really 
do love hearing from people. If you do reach out, please tell me how we came to be connected because I always like to track that back. And if it was on this podcast, I would love to know that. And happy always to talk to people interested in starting businesses in any space, but certainly female sexual health. And I love that this unfailing optimist that you've <laughs> taken that, that uh, nature that has made you so successful um, in building your business to having a fun conversation. So thank you. Thank you, Rachel. And I'm sure everyone will enjoy this podcast. I can't wait for it to launch and I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Rachel, for sharing your stories, your lessons, and advice. I will add Rollerball to the list of classic movies my family and I plan to watch. I also encourage brands and entrepreneurs to reach out and connect with Rachel. She is truly a gem and can certainly help grow your business or rethink your business. To hear more stories and lessons from other marketers and entrepreneurs, please subscribe to this podcast, The Happy Marketer Connection, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To learn more about community-powered marketing and brand-owned communities, please find us at vesta-go.com. Or you can, of course, find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Sue Freck. Thank you.